Hey guys, got my programming book. Give me a year, day, and network. How about uh, 1993, CBS, on Tuesday nights? Rescue 911 mm. and the CBS Tuesday night movie. <laughs> <laughs> mm. That was really boring. Can you give me something? <laughs> I was trying to get a sweet spot. Okay. That really sucked, Jonathan. <laughs> Let's oh, go wow. again. Okay, how about 1987, ABC, on Monday nights? MacGyver, Ooh. followed by Monday Night Football. Ooh. That's I am so, I do suck at this. ABC, 1971, Thursday. Alias Smith & Jones, Longstreet, and my favorite, Owen <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's why ABC sucked in the 70s. How about 1981, ABC on Thursday nights? Morgan Mindy, The Best of the West, Barney Miller, Taxi, and 2020. Wow, that's a pretty good lineup. Mm. That's what we'll be discussing tonight. Flow, programming, scheduling, and strategies on Inside the Box. following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Hi again, everyone. Welcome to Inside the Box. I'm Steve Voris, joined by Andrew Salvati and Jonathan Bullinger. And today we're going to be talking about Raymond Williams, <laughs> almost in unison. Uh, Raymond Williams was a British uh, scholar who, uh, in his TV and technology book, a seminal piece of work if you are a TV enthusiast, uh, there's a chapter dedicated to the idea of flow. And this is not something Raymond Williams invented by any means. Networks have been doing this long before he wrote, and this is around 1974. But he did bring attention to it. And uh, he did this in a U.S. hotel room. I believe it was in Florida. He was watching television while he was visiting the U.S., and he was irritated by, by commercial television. Uh, he was watching a movie, and he said that the commercial breaks were unnatural. Movies should not be cut up this way. And if you think anything to the non-commercial BBC that he was probably used to, um, he found it confusing where in, in the book he talks about not knowing when one thing was ending and another was beginning. So the movie stops and a commercial or a promo for another movie comes on and he becomes confused and irritated by, wait a minute, when am I watching? Where did this come in at? And I think that may have all happened to us at one time or another. If you leave the room and come back or you hear something in the kitchen when you don't have the screen in front of you and you think, wait, that's that's happening in my show, only to realize that it's on commercial or a break. And now it's been a strategy at times, too. I mean, I remember watching something like Mad Men and the commercial is set as two ad men in the 60s coming up with a uh, campaign for Dove or something, which absolutely. was the actual commercial, but it was meant to fit seamlessly within the episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what we're going to be talking about today, the strategy of flow. Uh, and flow is something that we can look at from a, through a critical lens, 
but it's also something that the industry very much utilizes. And I think in order to really look at this critically, we have to sort of get inside the industry. And so today we're going to be going over popular strategies of flow, uh, looking at what is going on. I want to make things apparent to you, the listener, so that when you're watching TV, I think it's pretty cool to really understand what's going on, why these decisions are being made. And, and sometimes I'll see on social media, on Facebook or whatnot, uh, network pages get a lot of complaints. Why are you squeezing the credits? Uh, why, are, why are the credits ending while my next show is beginning and it's in a small box? Why are you doing that? And it's really these strategies of flow that people can find irritating or they can say, oh, it saves time. This is great. Um, I can go right into my next programming. And, and that's really, it could be to extend commercial time. So I want to kind of dig in uh, deeper, drill down a little bit and see why these things are happening. And uh, Andrew, in your television experience, uh, how much do you, in your job, uh, deal with flow on a daily basis? Oh, well, I mean, we're, we're kind of all about flow because, I mean, this is, you know, we, we originate all the programming. So, I mean, I, I see a lot of it. Um, as it goes up to the satellite and then as it comes down and, you know, um, we have to kind of curate um, the flow itself in terms of the playlists that we look at. Um, you know, I, I've probably said this before on, on this show, but uh, modern television networks are built very much like playlists, like you're probably listening to our podcast episode right now. Um, and, you know, somebody's got to be there at all times to make sure that that, that playlist actually functions properly. Um, and then one of the other responsibilities of my job, uh, which gets into the master control aspect, is actually interrupting the flow at certain points to um, bring, you know, live news uh, to, to the viewer as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm very kind of conversant with the idea of flow uh, from really a technical and, you know, practical standpoint. But uh, I've been fascinated with this, you know, w Raymond Williams kind of critical uh, perspective on it as well since, you know, I, I came in contact with his work many years ago. Uh, I guess one thing we should in we should bring into this conversation are the three elements that Raymond Williams observes that make up flow. And we're talking in traditional U.S. television here. Uh, he says the, the three things, the three elements you need are the, the program itself, the content, promotions, and then commercials. Uh, how you mix them up e equates to the flow. And the main goal of flow for networks is to grab people's attention and keep them tuned. Don't lose them necessarily. So there's the attention-getting aspect of it, but also the maintaining of it, the loyalty of it that you want to ingrain in your viewers. Um, so in the early days of TV, uh, as networks began to broadcast more and more hours of the day, they sort of started going by a clock schedule to make it easy for people to tune in, for viewers to uh, understand when a show was starting, when it was ending. And so you're looking at an hour, 15 minutes, and 30-minute block programming. Uh, Adult Swim, I know, does some odd times right now. You're going to see variations of this. 15 minutes, yeah. Right, 15 minutes. But it's always either in the quarter hour, half hour, or full hour uh, in terms of your traditional sitcom drama and that, and that sort of thing. Um, so... Prime time is the most important time for flow because that's when most people are home and the households using TVs are usually at their highest percentage in the ratings. And, and so that is where the money is really meant to be made and that's where the competition is at its greatest. Uh, and so that's sort of what I want to focus on tonight. And I know in our show open, we were sort of going through the old TV schedules and finding out how these blocks of programming, um, what they were on a night and, and at a certain time. 
And it's sort of fascinating to look back at these to see how ABC, CBS, and NBC played uh, played against one another. All right, I want to ask you guys a question. Let's go back to 97-98 uh, television season. Can you name me the top three shows on television in that season? I, I'm terrible at this time period, but I'm going to take a shot at it nonetheless. I'm going to, and I'm sure Andrew will beat me on this, but I'll say who wants uh, who wants to be a millionaire friends and like diagnosis murder or something <laughs> uh, I'd say Seinfeld friends and ER okay well Andrew got two out of three you oh, see, correct, I told Jonathan. you I told you I'm Jonathan got zero on that yeah. we'll have to uh, but you know what if it was friends I wouldn't have said friends unless Jonathan had said it first ironically friends came in fourth ah uh, Seinfeld was number one ER was number two okay the number three show for the entire season out of all of broadcast television was Veronica's closet Huh. Right? And Veronica's Closet is not a show that any of us should be very familiar with. No. Because it bombed in syndication. It never went anywhere after that television series. And if we look back at the schedule of 1997-1998, where we find Veronica's Closet is on NBC in between Seinfeld and ER. Makes sense. Number one and number two, and Veronica's Closet's right in the middle. So what happens is, is that this mediocre show that could not stand on its own gets sandwiched in between two strong programs, something known as hammocking as a strategy of flow, and becomes the third most popular, most watched program that season, beating out Friends and all these other big name shows that we could go through. So ratings, it's not necessarily the most popular show. It just happened to be that people didn't turn the channel in 1997, 98 uh, when Veronica's Closet came on Thursday nights between Seinfeld and ER. Some other um, types of strategies that I think we should probably talk about, one that I particularly like that NBC also tried to do and TBS did for a while is called Bridging. Uh, bridging is off-the-clock programming. Have you guys ever tuned into a network where the show lasted till like 35 yeah, after the after hour? And, yeah. NBC did this with Friends a little bit. Um, they had a Friends episode that would start at 8 and end at 8.35. And the idea is that people who stick around and invest in that eight o'clock show well at 8 35 all the other networks have already started their shows so what are you left to do just stay with nbc uh and tbs used to do this um i know in the late 80s early 90s they always started at five after the hour all their shows started at 705 735 805 835 and i think again you start watching a show it's very hard to leave so another kind of tactic that uh, networks would use in, in sort of discouraging viewers from going elsewhere. I mean, I, I know Sci-Fi, the Sci-Fi Network, they they end their shows a little bit later too, but I don't know if that's a specific strategy of theirs. What do you mean by end later? Um, well, you know, when I have, when I'm in my workstation and I have all the networks in front of me, I notice that all the other shows and movies have gone off the air pretty much at the top of the hour, and Sci-Fi is just running their credits. Hmm. Which would also mean that they start the next show a little bit later, too, um, which would, you know, imply bridging. But I don't know if that's a specific strategy that, you know, we'd want to talk about. I mean, it has the characteristics, but I don't know if that's a conscious effort or that that's just. Yeah, what they or do. it could be an increasing uh, amount of commercials. One thing that TV <clears throat> land does uh, that I see a lot of complaints on social media uh, shows will start at 916 a.m. or 843 a.m. And you're like, how, how is this? How is this happening? 
uh, they'll take a half-hour sitcom and extend it to 43 minutes and then start the next show right after that and take an hour-long drama and make it an hour, nine minutes because they're adding more commercials. And so you get these really weird times and they there's no start time on the hour bomb of the hour it just kind of keeps building yeah you know i should say that that um movies will do that a lot um you know when they play movies at least on the networks that i'm watching um they'll they'll at least end at strange times like that um and then the next one will begin right after that and that's largely because the commercial payload is a little bit different for those right. uh longer long form programs than the uh than the half hour the hour shows yeah Absolutely. Yeah. So just to, I'm just going to kind of jump around a bit to some of these various strategies. Um, so, you know, you're mentioning in, in some of the notes for this show, you're talking about um, doubling, which is you double up your strongest show either the same night or across uh, multiple nights. Historically, and a bit of a unique example, but like uh, the 1966 Batman show, built-in cliffhanger, the show would be broadcast two nights a, two nights a week. So, you know, you get, you get the strong ratings. Doubling up, I think we see that also in marathon form, right? You'll have last week's strong episode, and then, you know, Mad Men, watch last week's first, and then watch the next one, or, or whatever the other popular shows are. Uh, and then marathon sessions, like I remember for a while, Discovery would do it with uh, with Mythbusters. It would be like all day Mythbusters until you get ready for the the, the latest one. And then we see we also see like counter programming uh, where you run content that is completely opposite what uh, the competition is. So I think of this in if you've got a sporting event on one channel, well maybe you're going to have like the Tony Awards, uh, or if you're going to have a sporting event on one channel, you're going to have a fashion show on the other. Um, and somewhat the somewhat the same audience, although it's 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 uh, a little bit different. Uh, halftime show for Super Bowl and like Puppy Bowl, you know, twenty seven or whatever, you know, slight slightly different. Um, and then Steve had talked about NBC's strategies in the nineties. Another strategy that they were really famous for. I might be wrong. They might have been the early two thousands, but like the supersizing, right? That was the big thing. Um, uh, so they'd have these, and then as Lauren Michaels' influence became stronger, it then became let's do live versions of our shows because of of the strength of of, of Saturday Night Live. At what point do networks have to consider, you know, the investment in counter programming where you're trying to, um, you know, you, you can either run content that's completely opposite or even blunting. And blunting is when you run a near identical show. So that would be like running ER against Grey's Anatomy, same night, same time slot. Is that useful? I, I, I think that almost hurts the viewer more than it, it helps the viewer. And it's more or less trying to take a chance at directing them away from I, one and to another. But yeah, and I, I, th I think I think I've seen it both ways, which is I, and even with the DVR age, because I have someone who I know someone who uh, uh, tapes a ton of television. And if there's two shows that are kind of similar and enjoyed, but they're opposite one another, maybe they can't be both recorded at the same time or something like that. There is that, oh, why can't they just put this on another night and then I'll have both shows I want to watch. Um, and then the, the other part, yeah, I apologize, my, my brain's kind of out to lunch here, but you said something else about counter-programming, uh, completely opposite, what did you say, completely opposite? Yeah, running, well, running programming completely opposite of what is on. I, you know, it's. I, I think the investment risk is very high for that, but it may be finding a niche of the audience that is otherwise not 
uh, catered to. Or yeah, maybe like during, the, during the Super Bowl, you know, there'll be, you know, various movies played that might cater to folks who aren't necessarily the biggest sports fans, right? Sure. I mean, they tend to be cheaper. You roll over for the Super Bowl, essentially. You know, right, right. No right. network's going to bring out right. any kind of blockbuster. But I think on a regular night, um, counter-programming at least is a tactic that allows you to say, look, I'm not going to win the sports fan uh, demographic here because of this game. We're going to run a program for non-sports fans. We're right. going to find that portion of the uh, audience that is not included in the ratings and cater to them uh, who are not sports fans. And I think that has a chance for television to sort of serve the other that, that is otherwise being ignored. Well, and I, I would just, I think what I was trying to add before was, was simply that if we're talking about flow, as a sort of macro understanding of the television landscape and, and it, what it says about itself and then what it says about ourselves is I think if you have a very counter programming choice amongst a sea of, of the opposite, I think that can really in relief bring out and, and really make you realize a few things, you know, so, so a silly example, right? Let's say it's Super Bowl time and you have Super Bowl this and Puppy Bowl that and Super Bowl this and Super Bowl halftime and, and sports this and sport biography and sport documentary and sports stat show and, you know, and all this stuff. And then you suddenly have on it, you happen to flip on a channel and the channel is like a half hour gripping documentary on uh, uh, domestic violence and uh, masculine culture in the U.S. It's sort of like, whoa, you just you disrupted the flow there. That was not supposed to be how the flow was rolling. And then you might, for even if it's just a half a second before you go back to your 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 uh, guacamole dip and 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 the and the and the score, you might be like, oh, geez, yeah, okay, I guess that's you know. So because remember, we are talking about flow, and so these are strategies not only for ratings and not only for network dominance and all that, but it's sort of well, I guess it is network dominance. It's sort of a, 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 a uninterrupted message or an uninterrupted way to go through. Um, uh, the a presentation of messages and in a sense it's almost like it's almost like a li- really slow version of like a montage you know well, yeah. sort of an assemblage of images and assemblages of mess of, of messages in a certain pattern in a certain way the classic example would be about four sitcoms from eight to ten each a half hour yes then from 10 to 11 you would have uh, some sort of drama hour long and then 11 would be your local affiliates news program yep. which is a big money earner and then, uh, and then after that, either uh, your Carson nighttime uh, uh, talk show or some sort of news pro- long form news program, and then that would get you to midnight, and then then all bets are off. So right. sorry, but that yeah, that's and of course you're talking about. about Carson Daly, the great yes. Carson Daly, oh, of right? Course. Okay, just oh to make God. sure he's about this, that. he's this generation's Dick Clark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my God. What I'm going to argue, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, flow today doesn't necessarily mean that someone is scheduling this on a network for you to to essentially audience flow, you know, go to go through the sequence. But think about Netflix. Think about YouTube. When your video ends, another one is beginning. Netflix now has the autoplay on many devices where it doesn't. And this is a pet peeve of mine. My credits do not end on my show about we get halfway through the credits. And the next episode starts on Netflix, and that bothers me. Um, on YouTube now, it used to be autoplay. that right the autoplay it used to be you would finish, and they give you a matrix of choices, and of course you have choices on the on the right hand side of the screen. Now it goes right into autoplay, which you can turn off, but you have to find that option to do that, right? So there's flow in in every media nowadays. Um, 
it's not just the old TV flow, but they want they don't want you leaving YouTube. They want you to say, oh, here's another video. I think I'll watch this. And yeah, they and make I, recommendations, right? It's that recommendation I, algorithm that works. And I would say that the old school three television network construction of flow that is still exists that still exists is you can see it in the coming in and out of promos from the sitcom or the the drama into the local news the stories they've chosen to either continue to be promotional items for the network's programming so classic example would be uh the nightly news coincidentally has a story about a local singer and tomorrow's going to be an episode of american idol or something like that or the, there's going to be a special story about someone's appearance on the morning show the next day. So it's not really a news story. It's just a promotional item. Sure. And so I think those are the pockets you see the old style flow. But I, I agree with you. It's now more about keeping attention. So I think Andrew mentioned this earlier. So you do now see commercials that are placed at a time when you thought you were going back into the show as you were fast forwarding. Oh, but they got you. You actually landed on the commercial or they're made to look like a scene from the show. Mm -hmm. So you stop on it thinking the show has returned or resumed rather. But aha, guess what? It's an insurance company where they're dressed like Mad Men. It's not Mad Men. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's promotion. It's it's this fight for 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 to continue our attention. So we do not go to the next. And it's very messy. It is not clear cut. Here's one. Here's the other. Here's the next. But rather you watch a football game. I guarantee you on CBS at one o'clock on Sunday, a football game is going to tell you what's on 60 minutes that night, what comes on after 60 minutes. And then what the Tuesday night movie of the week's going right. to be. And I would and say other things, that's know? the and I think that's the last vestiges of the old style network sort of flow. When you said messy, I thought you were you were getting into this idea that we're not allowed to have anything clean cut between promo show and commercial because they know we have the control to fast forward. It all is inner is deliberately interconnected so that we cannot just extricate ourselves easily from it. And we have to get even more savvy. Um, And that's why uh, somewhat, obviously there's now a return to uh, embedded uh, commercial place uh, product yes. placement rather because we're not going to stop and watch subway commercials so the main character has to literally be this, sitting there solving the crime and going boy the sandwich is good you know and well, she's dead you if know. you ever look at um andy griffith's show reruns i do uh, every day it, I, I mean in, in, <laughs> you have to look at them in the original form you can't look at them through syndication the way the andy griffith show uh, would run you have your episode with the commercial breaks the the show would end for all its intents and purposes however when they came back they would continue the plot in this um, non-important sort of way, and Andy would be drinking Sanka coffee and oh. say, you know what, Barn? This Sanka coffee is pretty good. Hey, Barney. Listen to this letter we got from Ellen. The manager? Yeah. It says, dear boys, thought you'd like to know Pierre and I were married yesterday. Oh. After the ceremony, we went right to our new house, and we stopped at the door, and guess what Pierre did? Carried her across the threshold. He carried a jar of new Sanka coffee across the threshold. <laughs> he did that because he knows I love Sanka that's made from a whole new blend of the world's finest coffees. And uh, so at our wedding dinner, we had lots of new Sanka because it's still 97% caffeine-free, and you can drink as much as you want any time you want. And, uh, After our honeymoon, I plan to go back to being a manicurist. That's my chosen profession. I do nails. <laughs> Sincerely, Ellen. And you didn't get no such a letter. I know. Well, where'd you get a tail like that? That's my chosen profession. I do tails. <laughs> Try new Sanka, the coffee for folks who love good coffee and plenty of it. I appreciate it, and good night.
you need that today with DVRs, right? That, they almost need to go back to that where the television characters are pitching a product. And they are. I mean, they are really for, watch it, for the know? most part. I mean, it's not like the guys in Games of Th- Game of Thrones are eating Doritos or anything <laughs> like that. But, but I mean, I, I remember when it started coming back. And I know it's crazy because it's now it's been it's literally going to be like 16 years ago. But like Leno in the middle of his Tonight Show run, I remember I was watching randomly one night and they he was like, all right, you know, stay with us. We got a bare naked ladies, you know, coming up next or whatever. And they cut to his announcers announcers like, hey, hope you're having a good time. He's like eating Doritos. And I was like, wow, like product placements are back inside. And now. I mean, the the one of the better culprits these uh, last few seasons or when USA had those string of shows. Monk, Psych, uh, Covert Affairs, uh, the other one about doctors, whatever. Burn Notice. Burn Notice, thank you. I mean, that show, those shows, it's like the characters all drive a particular model car, which you easily identify. They use maybe a particular insurance company or they eat a certain sandwich or something like that. And they'll talk about the features of the car, too, occasionally. Oh, do they? (laughs) So, so yeah, so so that, that is definitely there, which I then, I think, goes back to your original idea, which is, because you said you, we laid out uh, content, commercials, and promos, network, really, network promos. Yes. And really, can we even talk about flow if we take out the commercial aspect of it? Because it seems like such an integral part to why we even have flow. You know, like if, if we pretend we were going to do a, a set of programming, and I guess in a sense we are here as we're, we're, we do episodes every so many weeks, but like if there was no commercial element to it, I don't know if flow has as much meaning to as a cons, uh, as a concept. Well, then I think we'd have to get into the idea of, you know, can we divorce television as we know it from the commercial? You could probably make the argument that you can't do without promos either because promo, you know, punts you over to the next program on HBO, sure. on NBC, right? So it's I think it's a three-legged stool and what I'm trying to get at I guess is that I think it's difficult to remove any single one, but then when we get into our HBOs it might be a little bit different. If I can interject a, a, an example here, and then you can tell me where this fits, perhaps. Um, several years Andy ago. Andy Griffith again? Or? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually going forward to the 21st century for this <laughs> one. Yeah. Oh, what are we doing there? On rare, uh, rare occurrence. Um, Jay Leno goes to <laughs> oh, 10 right. o'clock. You remember the whole debacle with the Tonight oh, Show? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can talk about that a lot. So Jay Leno goes to 10 o'clock. And this is where Flo really, I think, controls so much more than just the ratings for a show. Jay Leno at 10 o'clock was a ratings disaster if you just looked at the book. NBC was getting killed in the ratings, but they were making a profit. And so what happened was Jay Leno was so cheap to produce at 10 o'clock that even the bad ratings, NBC said, we don't care, we're turning a profit on this. And it showed that the rating system was almost flawed in a sense. What hurt NBC and why they got rid of Jay Leno had nothing to do with the ratings. It was the local NBC affiliates and the O's and O's that complained about their late local news being killed in the ratings because nobody was watching Jay Leno. So even though the network was turning a profit, all the local NBC news affiliates were, uh, station affiliates, were losing money on their 11 o'clock news because they had no lead-in audience. The, the lead-in, the flow was terrible. And that ultimately led NBC to axe Jay Leno from the 10 o'clock spot. And that's when you know everything went down with Conan O'Brien and The Tonight Show. But that shows you that you can buck the rating system and still turn a profit, but ultimately flow and the sequence of your programming is what's going to determine what you do. Um, because the 11 o'clock news, you know, those local stations were hurting for advertising. Yeah, no, that that's a great example. Again, though, I, 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 I would just preface that that is as far as the the traditional way networks operated, that's a that's a perfect example, which is 
network identity, network goals, ratings, advertising rates, working with local affiliates and what their needs and such, profit centers of local news, and needing those strong lead-ins, et cetera. Um, I don't think we'll necessarily get into it in this episode, but looking at sort of newer versions, like like a channel like a like an IFC, they run so many promos. I mean, they have commercials as well, but it's just like they're constantly promoting all their new stuff, all their new stuff. And and it'd be interesting sort of how that, what the balance is between commercial and promo and content on a station like that versus, and, and because NBC is the easiest one, right? Which is everyone knows that to the, traditionally the Today Show and the Tonight Show are the biggest profit centers for them as a network. And so it's always this constant promotion to, to build one another up and then combine it into the network, uh, sorry, the primetime shows and the late night shows. Um, so just a, a bit of a different animal, um, but I think one we're more familiar with. Yeah, and I think to go back to HBO for a moment, I mean, it seems that everything that's on HBO is like a commercial for HBO because that's how they make their money, right? It's, it's attracting more subscriptions, right? So the quality of the program, uh, quality of the programming, and of course the promos getting you to continue to watch, you know, the next movie or continue to watch the new, you know, HBO original oh, sure. series. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And but they, I don't, think they don't need the, the commercial subsidy. Right, right. They don't need the subsidy in that way, but, but they get, yeah. Way. So like you, you, we could, we could kind of, shift our perspective a little bit and almost see the entirety of the network as kind of commercial for itself. They want to build up that brand right. recognition. They want you to, to get you talking about the shows uh, around the water cooler, around the social media water cooler. Right. And I think it would also be interesting because I'm glad Steve had brought it up, you know, HBO, which is if you can figure out that that there is a weird loyalty to the brand, not only because they like the good shows they produce, but if it is like well, when I watch HBO, I expect to see a little like mini documentary thing about behind the scenes about something or a certain kind of promo that's also a behind the scenes thing. Like if that is part of your pattern of watching, then, yeah, the flow is definitely there and it's specific. However, the argument is minimized if you ask everybody who watch, buys HBO and they go like, oh, I just turn on for the show I like and I don't I never watch anything else. I never watch a promo. I never watch, you know, but I think I doubt that. I think I remember, you know, in the 80s when I was a kid, I think we had HBO for a year or something. You turn to get hooked into like, oh, yeah. Oh, trailer for this. And oh, yeah. oh, it's going to be a behind the scenes interview with so and so who's in this movie. And then they go like appearing on HBO at 4 p.m. You know, that sort of thing. Oh, OK. Yeah. And Goonies it becomes, is on next. I'm there. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it becomes that's your sort of flow and the interaction of with the channel it's not just simply like well it is 12 noon i'm sitting down now start movie okay it is now 2 p.m end movie turn off and i move on to the next thing you you tend to get a little more engaged with it just beyond the the content yeah, i agree I, I think one tactic that you see though in that in that flow is that networks will change shows so if you ever had a favorite show and it's on thursday night one year and then it's on tuesday night the next year and then monday night the year after that you know that movement uh i think frazier is a great example that nbc did this because once their thursday night got really strong they would take a strong show like a frazier and move it to a weaker night right and you try to right. start migrating your audiences around and it shows you that they're doing this trying to get the other program catching on and so um, but sometimes that can also hurt the hit show if you're getting moved to a night that's not particularly good and you no longer have Seinfeld around you or other whatever the NBC's yeah. hit shows were friends in the in the 90s. Um, you can also hurt a show that way. So, you know, it's, it's sort of flow can as much help a show as it can hurt a show. It's not necessarily 
you know, just expecting the audience is this number and it will always be this number no matter where we move it to. Yeah, I'll give two, two and I apologize because I know we're talking about sort of historically, but I'll talk about more recent shows with, the, with these examples. One would be, so David Letterman uh, uh, recently left the air f- uh, uh, after all these years. And um, and after him is uh, uh, the Late Late Show's new uh, host, James Corden. I flipped around the other night just to kind of see what they were running in Letterman's old 1130 spot. And they're running like a, a reruns of either The Mentalist or like CSI or whatever. So that is what that's that's so funny, right? Because there's nothing. It's not a talk show. It's nothing to do with James Corden's cool new late night talk show. But they know that ratings wise, that's a strong enough lead in to get him mm-hmm. possibly get him some audience to, to stay with him. The other thing, which Steve just kind of got me thinking about, I didn't quite realize this, but even Adult Swim does the old school way because uh, last few years, one of the shows I love on Adult Swim is the 15 minute late night show Children's Hospital, which is a surrealist comedy. After that, they started another show called uh, NTSF SD SUV, which is a parody of all the NCIS. That was impressive what you just did. Thank you. The NCIS uh, stuff starring Paul Shear, And it was placed right behind uh, Children's Hospitals. And that's the old school strategy is you know Children's is a hit and people like that. But there's really no way... (laughs) <laughs> because they're the same parody, but it's to- totally different genres. One is a weird, surreal takeoff of, of ER, and the other is a surreal takeoff of NCIS. So there's not really a reason why you necessarily would like both of them, but yet they still went with the old strategy of like, eh, Well, they are both stay. procedurals, I guess. But, yeah. <laughs> in, in the broadest but, sense but of But yeah, the I mean, yeah. Uh, talking about Adult Swim, we can also talk about how they kind of take an ironic spin on the old school idea of flow by scheduling their paid programming, which turns out to be, you know, too many cooks or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, or, or what was it the image of a bear in the woods that kind of, does a parody of uh, pharmaceutical commercials. So again, I think obviously I think programming and programmers are still in in vogue, but it's more challenged these days because they don't have that sort of three network monopoly, um, and we have now you know DVRs and 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 we can watch whenever. I will just do a little plug and say if you've never seen, there's a wonderful comedy film called that came out maybe about eight years ago or so called The TV Set. And it's got Sigourney Weaver and uh, David Duchovny and um, I forget the British actor who was in Fantastic Four and a few other things. But um, uh, he but it's a it's a satirical take on how absurd the network thinking is be from ordering a pilot, promoting the pilot, the compromises have to be made, how they look at the TV schedule why they make certain choices that they do versus they don't. And I would also then say is that if anyone has watched the Matt LeBlanc show episodes on Showtime, very similar feel to that, sort of the absurdity of episodic television on big net time networks, why they think the way they do, the silly choices they make. Um, uh, if you have any interest in that, you should check out those two uh, things. He was part of the hit show Joey. That was yeah. the spinoff, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Friends. So, yeah, uh, just one more thing about doubling, which I think is interesting. Um, it's not only a way to kind of capitalize on your strongest show, but it's also a couldn't can be a strategy of uh, risk mitigation. Um, there's a famous, uh, very famous uh, instance of this with the, uh, the 1977 miniseries Roots, uh, which was actually scheduled for eight nights in a row um, because the network thought it would be a huge risk uh, to show a miniseries that had a you know predominantly African American uh, cast and and subject matter. Um, so the uh, executives over at ABC thought you know well if 
this is terrible if people don't watch it. You know, we're only really at a week of programming time. Uh, so they schedule it eight nights in a row. Um, so it can work, work both ways. Okay, so in sort of wrapping up this conversation about flow, I think especially in today's context, our playlists and things that we create through computer technology replacing the traditional flow that programmers would create for us. Well, I think, you know, um, maybe splitting the difference a little bit um, is the idea of maybe not so much hands-free flow, but the algorithm as flow. So we were talking a little bit about, you know, Netflix and YouTube earlier. And, you know, at the end of a video clip, you're presented with different options, you know, things that you might like if you liked uh, Twin Peaks or, you know, whatever it is that you can then click on. It presents you with a list of options. It's nothing that you necessarily created, um, but you do sort of have some sense of agency within the options available to you, but it's not, you know, completely hands-free either. Um, yeah. I mean, I think flow is getting kind of lazy. Binge watching, right? That's a term mm-hmm. that has really become popular. And with Netflix, you if you start a show, especially an episodic series, it will just continue playing until you right, stop it right. with the autoplay. And I think sometimes with our playlists, we're most likely just going to watch, we're going to binge on one show, we say, or something like that through a DVD or whatnot. And, and I would just add that I think I think if it's an individual or, or maybe a duo viewing you want to curate your own flow. So my own experience would be you knock off a, a maybe a half hour show and then maybe you knock off a different half hour show. Then you look at, you know, this is all in the DVR. You look, oh, we have three of these short, like 15 minutes. Okay, binge marathon through those 45 minutes. And then we go on to maybe that movie we saved or whatever. But I think the traditional idea of flow and letting programmers uh, uh, do it for us that might be more useful or desired in sort of the the appointment uh, appointment style watching where it's a social activity. Oh, hey, come over. You think of these shows that are popular now, like there's Walking Dead and then there's the after show Talking Dead. There's the Bravo reality shows where you have the reunion show or the pre-show where they talk about things. And I could see where that you kind of go like, great, you know, you've put on four hours of this for me. I'm going to invite people over or Skype while I'm watching it with somebody or whatever and, and do it that way rather than you going, eh, I don't want this. I don't want that. So, uh, again, I don't have any data to back that up. It's just a guess or a gut feeling, but I feel like when it's on your own, you kind of want to do it your way versus if you find a utility or, or a pleasure out of, sort of going with a group into the situation, letting it kind of flow over you based on how the programmer has uh, has set that up for you. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode on Flow. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we hope you check out some of our other podcasts, our previous episodes, if you have not already. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts and uh, you know any ideas that, you, that you'd like to share with us. We are certainly eager to hear. So for Steve Voorhees. Andrew Salvati. Uh, Jonathan Bollinger. Thanks for listening to Inside the Box.